Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. We also wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. All right, episode 227. Today we're talking to Scott Egbert, who has a background in high-tech finance. He's currently a career development and transition coach. We'll get into all that now. I, I just am fascinated that we were able to talk to somebody from the finance side of a technology company and maybe get some insight into how to relate to that side of the business. Where, where did we uh, hear about Scott from? Do you remember? So kudos to Leanne Elliott from the Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture podcast. That's a great one to check out, by the way, hosted by a business psychologist and a business owner. They have some very fascinating topics and guests that you should check out. But after speaking with Leanne, just kind of a one-on-one -on -one chat, she recommended that we reach out to Scott as a potential guest on the show. And that's what we did. You're going to find out we had a fantastic conversation. We sure did. One of my favorite things that stood out during the conversation, I'll just go ahead and spoil it a little bit, is have you ever thought about your career, the experience you have, and perhaps the experience you need as a visualization of a profit and loss statement? I really love that analogy that Scott paints for us during the discussion. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for people to listen to that and and get the the full picture painted for them, like what that that really means. I found it interesting to hear some of the things that Scott said. I think it came up a couple times of we would ask him a question. He would say, oh, yeah, I would definitely recommend that you do that. But that's not what I did. <laughs> that came across, I mean, the off the top of my head it, for his engineering career because he started off as a uh, mechanical engineer and also getting his MBA and what that process looked like. I, yeah, it's, it was, it was funny to hear how many times he said that Scott got to teach us what finance actually is. I think that was a really good thing to listen to. And you can hear us or maybe specifically me kind of muddling through and trying to understand that. Also look out for leadership and ownership. You know, the phrase think like an owner gets bandied about a lot, but Scott had some really interesting insight into what that actually means and and what leadership actually means like the kind of tactical um, versus strategic distinctions between those things and and of course we had again my favorite part how to communicate with finance but instead of telling you what we're going to talk about why don't we just get straight into it episode 227 part one shocker 
of our conversation with Scott Eckbert. Scott Eckbert, welcome to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. It's really uh, terrific to have you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, like uh, what you currently do and uh, what your day-to-day looks like in that job? Yeah, I, so I'm a leadership coach and I focus on career development and transition. And so what that looks like is I am helping people who are dissatisfied in their career and trying to help them find joy. And a uh, number of different examples, maybe you want to get into that later. Sure, we can uh, maybe save that for the back half of the conversation. I. I was kind of uh, wondering, as you said that, and I was looking at your uh, LinkedIn, how your career started because it doesn't it doesn't say coaching and it doesn't say leadership. It says uh, aerospace engineering. Yeah, so a confluence of a few different things. Um, so I wanted when I was in high school, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, but I have uh, glasses. So I don't have, at least at that time, you had to have 20-20 uncorrected vision. So that wasn't going to happen. By the way, I can't even ride the teacups at Disneyland without getting six. That would have never worked out anyways. <laughs> but so I didn't have a plan B. So I went in and talked to my high school counselor. And what, what should I major in? And he said, you're good at math and science. You should be an engineer. I said, okay. <laughs> there was no, I didn't question that. So, you know, I had the interest in aviation. I had an interest in space um, since the first or second grade. And so, okay, aerospace engineering, you know, kind of get to scratch that itch a little bit, maybe not actually flying or being an astronaut, but um, can, can maybe design that or participate in that in some other way. I like that, building on the strengths that you had, even though maybe not sure what you wanted to do. It looks like you also got an MBA. Was that right back to back after the degree or was that a little later? No, it wasn't back to back. So I I had been in, an engineer for about four years. And one of the experience I had as an engineer, and I'll just put this out there. I think I have a tendency to get bored really easily. Um, so that's a, that's a me issue. But my experience as an engineer, I found the scope was very narrow. And as I was talking to some of my counterparts at other companies, was kind of finding the same thing. And and some of them loved it. I was kind of looking to looking for a little more variety in my work. And so I was at an electric utility company and we were looking to acquire a few power plants. And I was pulled in as an engineer to kind of look at the specs on, on some of these plants. And so I did that, but I was just really fascinated with the whole process. Like, why were we looking at them in the first place? What's the strategy behind that? And, and so as I started asking some of these questions, the advice that I was given is I should probably go to business school and, and, and get an MBA because then I could work on those types of, of issues. So I did that. I went in the evening program while I was working full time. So I did the, the four-year uh, stint at business school. So I was an engineer for about eight years. That's really, uh, really cool. I never thought it through that like an evening program obviously would take more time, but that does make sense. I'm not sure I would recommend that, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's no life for four years. Yeah, th- there's there's no time, right? It's like eight hours for, of working plus six hours of school every day. 
something like that. Yeah. Is that pre-family? Like, were you by yourself at that time? Or it was. I was married, but didn't have kids yet. So pre-kids, I thought that was a good idea. Probably questionable even then, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it's so interesting. I, you know, I was in school in the early '90s. Ninety-five, I think, was the graduation date. They would not let us major in aerospace engineering because at the time there were no jobs or something, something like that. So you could be a mechanical engineer, but not an aerospace engineer. Well, I, I'm laughing, John, because I graduated in 93. And so pretty much a recession in the aerospace market. So I, I ended up working as a mechanical engineer. Oh, too funny. <laughs> okay. So they were right. <laughs> it sounds like, though, the more business-centric operations were more interesting than the actual doing of the engineering based on what you said before of people saying, oh, if you go get an MBA, then you can work on these things all the time. Yeah, I think I was more interested in kind of the why. You know, why as a company, why are we doing the things that we're doing and how is that strategic? Oh, that's interesting. The strategic questions and the decisions that are being made, like, it, was it specifically around mergers and acquisitions or um, was it other strategic uh, types of questions as well? That was the initial project that I was on that, that really started to pique my interest. I worked on, you know, there were kind of rent versus buy or lease versus buy type of analysis that I worked on. And I, I was fortunate. I had, while I was an engineer, I had a manager that knew that I was interested in finance and, and kind of started to give me projects to, you know, kind of test out, you know, what some of that finance work might look like on a smaller scale. Here's a question that is maybe a little bit loaded, but did you have an idea of the kind of position that you could get on the other side of getting this MBA? Like what kind of work that would be, what the title would be, what that day-to-day, -day, did you like shadow somebody or was it just kind of, here's the advice and then you're not on this project anymore, but suddenly you're going to school as kind of a leap of faith? It's a loaded question because the smart thing to do would be to shadow someone or at least have conversations with people who are doing the jobs that you're looking for. So that's definitely, if I could go back and give my younger self advice, that would be high on the list. And same thing with engineering, even going further back. You know, I went through a four-year uh, bachelor's degree. I never did an internship. I never spent a day doing what an engineer does or even having the conversations with engineers. So it, it was a it was a pretty big leap of faith looking back. I still argue that like that's not something we are really taught to do in school. Hey, go talk to the people who do the thing you think you want to do. You just say, "Hey, I want to be a doctor when I grow up or I want to be a rock star when I grow up." And because that's what I've seen and it looks cool, but it's not Oh, because my mom's a teacher and I actually interviewed her about all the different things she has to do. And you know what? It, it doesn't, doesn't sound fun anymore. Or it does sound fun. And that's what I want to do. Yeah, I agree. Uh, now, I will say at least in a traditional business school, there's typically an internship between year one and year two. And there are, you know, depending on the program, various experiential projects that are sometimes integrated with companies. So there, I, I found a lot more opportunity. Now, being in the evening program, not so much. 
Uh, it, it, like I said, in my case, I had a cooperative manager that was looking to give me on-the-job experience. That's what I hope for everybody, that they get one of those managers who, number one, cares about what you want to be doing long-term, even if it's different than what you do right now. And number two, gives you some things in that area so that you get a taste of what it's like. Exactly. And I feel like he took a risk on a couple levels. I mean, one is if you have, as a manager, if you have a scarcity mindset, you're not going to want to let your employee go and go do something else. So that's one. He was willing to do that. And I think two is letting someone work on projects that are outside of their domain, that that's taking a risk, right? And it was his reputation on the line. So I definitely appreciate that. Not every manager would have done that. So coming out of that, was it an immediate change of job or did you kind of stay in the same industry, same company, slightly different role? How, what was getting the MBA like as far as changing your job? Um, I ended up changing kind of everything at once, which again, not necessarily something I would recommend, but I, I moved from engineering to finance. I went from electric utility to high tech you know, semiconductors. Um, so not at all, you know, regulated industry to highly competitive. Uh, and I moved across the country. I was in Michigan and, and moved out here to Oregon. So it was a lot of change at once. They speak the same language. So that's one thing you kept saying. <laughs> There's that. Yeah. Same currency. Yeah. And you even changed time zones. Since we're recording this right after we had to spring forward in the United States, everybody's still recovering from that. Yeah, I, I survived. Yeah somehow. What is the difference between finance and accounting? Like a lot of times I see people using those terms like kind of interchangeably or one being the superset of the other, but it's never been a hundred percent clear to me. Yeah, it's a really good question. And at, typically at smaller companies, those terms are used interchangeably, even though they're not the same thing. So think of accounting as kind of the recording and reporting of financial transactions. So you have a cash flow statement or a profit and loss statement or a balance sheet, the, the 10 Qs, the 10 Ks, all the things that the investors want to see to know how the company's doing. The accounting function is responsible for generating those reports. So think kind of keeping score. Uh, finance is more in kind of the the planning and directing of those transactions. And so if you think of it, you know, your personal finances, if you have a budget, you know, you're determining how much you want to spend in each area, that would be kind of the finance function. Uh, if you're balancing your, do we, does anyone balance checkbooks anymore? I don't know, but if you did, that would be more of an accounting function. So does deciding how I'm going to spend my money is finance and seeing whether whether my checkbook is balanced at the end of the month is accounting. Yeah, that's my personal finance analogy. Okay. And really, it's whether it's a small company or a big company, you have to have that accounting piece because uh, there, are, there are investors that, that want to know how the company is doing. When we talk about those transactions, we're talking about things like invoices that the company has issued to its customers and the payments from those customers against those invoices and how those are tracked and is everything been received in terms of the payment has the invoice been issued all that stuff the, the 
payment terms are net 45 and has this person paid within the 45 days that they agreed to on the purchase order? Maybe I just went way too deep there. I don't know. Well, all of those details, yep, would be definitely a key part of accounting. Got it. So accounts payable, accounts receivable, all part of accounting. But finance is a little bit more, maybe I'm simplifying this, but the the financial analysis behind strategic decisions, would that be fair? Yes. Yeah. Okay. This is a uh, maybe a random unplanned question, but we just had Silicon Valley Bank fail in the last few days. Um, and there are a lot of companies that were banking there who maybe got impacted. So how about corporate treasury? Is that something that one, is that like a finance function? Is it an accounting function? Is it a hybrid? I think of that as an extension of accounting. It's different than how I described it, but it's basically how, what do we do? What do we do with our cash? And how do we make sure that we have the cash that we need? That's kind of a, my oversimplified treasury definition. But you were more interested in finance, or at least that's where you landed. Yes. And that had to do with your interest in kind of the initial question that you faced, which is what was the strategy behind this acquisition? That's right. So those are the types of questions that you wanted to be able to answer. And did you kind of tailor the uh, the MBA around that? Is that, I, I don't know, I, I just assumed that, you know, the, there are programs can be tailored towards like a specific type of role. Yeah, for my program, I went to Michigan, did the evening program at Michigan. And so they had certain core requirements. And then the rest was a pool of electives. And all of my electives, I didn't finance. So very heavily weighted. Uh, no, I think I did one corporate strategy elective as well. Uh, but I just did the one core marketing class, the one core org development class, because I thought that that's soft skills, that's fluffy. I'm not interested in that because I'm a quantitative person. Uh, again, going back and that org development stuff, that's the most important stuff there is because that's where that's where companies go off the rails. So funny to uh, realize that in retrospect, right? Okay, maybe I'm just stuck on this word finance. Whenever I think about people who get into finance, it is about like investment finance. And I guess that could be related, like an investor who's thinking about buying or selling stock or buying or selling, like controlling shares of a company is, is kind of similar to like an acquisition, maybe. So maybe they're related. But you said that you were focusing on finance and kind of working towards that M&A, which was maybe the initial question, but not the, the only question that you wanted to, to try to ask in a role. Can you maybe clarify that for me? Yeah. And is your question kind of how, what are the different types of finance? How are they different than investment finance? Maybe you just answered my question, which is when you say finance, there are different sub genres. That's not the right word. So there's investment finance versus maybe corporate finance. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Yeah, and I'd say for me, so I looked at investment banking. Uh, it was kind of the first area of finance that I looked at. Pays very well, and the hours are crazy. And so even though I didn't have kids yet at that point, we were planning on having a family. And so my, my wife and I had talked. We said, that's probably not you know, the, the lifestyle I want to sign up for, even though it pays really well. And so as a result of that conversation, I looked at 
uh, you know, kind of went from investment banking to corporate finance, where it doesn't pay quite as much as the investment banking, but you know, a little more manageable in terms of workload. So the idea being like the extended hours of full-time job plus school, you didn't want to just just keep on working those same hours. <laughs> yes. Okay, got it. Yeah, and the late nights and the weekends. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Just depends on what you define as fun, I guess. I mean, I like watching movies about people in, corp- in uh, investment finance, but that doesn't mean that I want to do it. Yeah, and I think it comes down to we'll get to the next session, kind of what comes up in the coaching, but it's each individual's values and priorities. So if your goal coming out of college is I want to make as much money as I can, as quickly as I can, then for that person, investment banking is a great option. Is that a lesson that you kind of learned then at that point where you weren't necessarily thinking about it in a coaching other people sense, but you had to make like a, an analysis of like, quantitative versus qualitative, right? It's like, uh, I don't know exactly how to put a quantitative value on quality of life, but I know that it, I won't be getting what it is that I want out of this uh, type of role. Yeah, I would say I, that was probably a first step in learning it. And then there was definitely a progression of learning over the years because there it was just kind of a, I didn't want to sell my soul to my employer was pretty much what it boiled down to. Um, I wanted to have some life outside of work. But what I found over time, it's much more nuanced and and our priorities change. So when I came out of business school, for example, I was, even though I didn't want to be working every night and weekends, I was very achievement oriented. You know, so I did have, I I wanted to, grade progression meant, meant a lot to me, promotions. This is when I didn't have kids. As kids started coming along, oh, all of a sudden balance is even more important than it was when it was just a hypothetical thing in, you know, coming out of business school. Yeah. Uh, the constant reevaluation of what's truly important to you. I definitely get that. Yeah. And security is another one. So when I came out of business school, I had four different offers to choose from. So I wasn't super concerned right out of the gate if, you know, if something would have fallen through at my first choice. Uh, But then fast forward over time, when we're going through, you know, rounds of sweeping layoffs, like we're seeing in high tech right now, I mean, I'm hearing that from all of my clients is security is a lot more important than it used to be. Right. Security in a job specifically, not cybersecurity, right? Or maybe both. Right, right. Maybe both. Yeah, I I think that th- that's a powerful lesson to to learn is figuring out what your your individual requirements are, like what it is that you your what it is that you value in your career, right? Not just in the immediate job, and then be willing to to ask those questions, you know, over time because it's inevitably it will change, right? Yeah, time of life, you know, phase of life, time of year, maybe. You know, I, I knew I wanted to do this, but I didn't want to be in the Arctic Circle with an endless, uh, endless day or endless night. Hey, the, you, you find things out about yourself. Oh, I didn't know I didn't want to be in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, I didn't know that I didn't want to be in Florida. Any number of things that, that could uh, change what it is that you think that you want. That's right. Well, yeah, just like actually getting the job you think you want. Well, let's talk about that for a second. When you got your first finance job 
thinking back to it, was it what you wanted it to be and what you thought it would be? Uh, no, it was okay because I was learning. It was my first finance job. So, you know, steep learning curve. At the time, it felt to me a lot. We were talking about the difference between finance and accounting. It felt a little more bean counter-ish to me and, and maybe less strategic. You know, but there's an element too of, you know, the some of these roles, and this is, I guess, contrasting my experience in engineering versus finance. Is in, in engineer, there's a pretty prescriptive job description that that I had and didn't really deviate too much from that. In in finance, I'd say at least in high tech finance, it's here's your base job description and we're kind of looking for you to initiate where are the strategic opportunities. And so that required really ramping on, on my business acumen and just knowing what was going on. And so that's not, by definition, it's not going to happen right out of the gate. Right. Because you have to, you have to learn the business a little bit, much more so than you knew from the outside looking in. I think you and I are saying the same thing. You have to learn the business and the core job responsibilities like first before you can step outside that and think about, you, you don't even know where to step outside and, and look at strategy opportunities, unless you happen to like haven't had an internship, which even then doesn't necessarily give you enough of an inside view to, to hit the ground running there. Yeah. And so I realized with hindsight that I feel a little bit frustrated in that first assignment. And now I realize, well, that's going to be the case in any first assignment when you're changing industries and changing functions. And so I you know, later on, as I started mentoring and then coaching, you know, newer finance analysts that were just starting out, I, I saw a lot of what I saw in myself, right? We're just kind of bright eyed, ready to go take over the world and starting in this job. And it's, it doesn't happen right away. I noticed this almost ego of people going through college thinking that they were going to graduate and then, be, you know, lead something or be like a, you know, strategic person right away. Does that happen also when you're going through an MBA program thinking like, oh, I'm going to step out of this and be hired into doing high level thinking about the company, even though I don't know anything about the company <laughs> and it could be one of like, you know, 6,000 companies, like somehow this, you know, two-year, four-year program has taught me enough to be like a, enough of a strategic strategic thinker that I won't have to know anything about the specifics of the company. I'll just be able to go and then and do strategy. It sounds so crazy when you put it that way, John. But yeah, I do think people that are admitted into you know top-tier business schools they've accomplished a lot already. So I, I do think egos at play. They've accomplished a lot. They're they're spending a fortune to go to business school because they have very high expectations of doing even more than they've already done. And then you get plugged into this quote unquote entry level position in finance, but maybe not realizing it was like, yeah, but everybody that they hired into this position also went to like a high end, like top level MBA school. <laughs> Just like, right. you know, maybe when you're getting into aerospace engineering, they're like, well, I mean, we only hired like the top 10% of graduates that year for this aerospace program, you know, or mechanical engineering program, like, and they are all entry level because they don't know enough about what it is that we do or, you know, what their day-to-day -day job functions are going to be. Yeah. As of day one on the job, nobody cares where you got your degree. 
Man, I just feel like we should loop that three or four times when we release this. Episode title, as of day one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a really important credential to get your foot in the door. But once once you're in, that's, that's not what people look to and care about. So what was that tra- career trajectory in finance? What did that look like? What, what did you imagine that it would look like once you got your head around, you know, where it is that you were? And then how did that match what actually happened? I'll just say, first of all, I didn't have a super clear idea. And this goes back to talking to people that actually do the job. You know, even if you're, if you're doing an internship, you have your, you're working with those people and you have the opportunity to ask these kind of questions and be mentored. Uh, by the people you're working with. And so I didn't do that. So I didn't have a real clear baseline. You know, I knew that be starting off at an, an, at an analyst and, you know, progressively be more and more of a senior analyst. And then at, at some point, those analysts become managers. And But I, I didn't even, at that point, I didn't even have a clear sense of what leadership meant. It sounds like to you, it was just something you eventually do, leadership. Yeah. So interesting. It sounds a lot like a, a guest we had on recently, Anudu Parhar. He kind of said something similar. I just thought that was what you were supposed to do. And I didn't have this epiphany one day that, oh, I want to be in leadership. He just kind of thought that's what he needed to do. Yeah, and it's interesting. And so, again, I mentioned I, I took all those electives in, in finance. And so I was really skilled at, at modeling, you know, at forecasting, um, I could, I could build all the models. And so at that point, that's what I thought really good finance looks like. And there, it is a very important skill. I don't mean to diminish that, but I guess when it gets into finance leadership, there's so many other things that are more important than being able to be savvy in Excel. What was the tipping point for you? Like, okay, I think this is something I need to do. What about the knowing when you needed to make that move? Or when am I ready to go and do this thing that I think I'm supposed to do? Which in your case, moving up into financial leadership. Yeah. So I mentioned, you know, coming right out of business school, I didn't have a real clear baseline. And so I, at some point early on, I decided, you know, I had a goal of I wanted to be what we would now call like a business unit CFO. And so what I did is I sat down with mentors early on and kind of worked backwards from there and said, okay, what are the skills that I'm going to need to get? What are the experiences that I'll need? And almost kind of created, you know, a checklist that guided, you know, what would my next role be? What, you know, kind of a logical progression. And of course, one of those things is people management. Is that, a skill that is incidental or is it core, the people management part? Can you expand on that? Sure. When you're a business unit CFO, and maybe I should back up and make sure I understand that correctly. I I assume that means that chief financial officer of a business unit and a business unit has its own P&L statement uh, around a product or a portfolio of products that it's responsible for. Correct. Yeah, that's a great summary. Okay. What I'm wondering is people management, that's not a frontline management job. And that's not a middle, middle management job. Like that is 
like an executive level job. So I understand that you're, you always or almost always are going to have a team that's reporting to you. But when you're that high up in an organization is the people management, you're, you're essentially managing another team of executives, maybe VP level executives. Like, is that people management part core to the job function or is it incidental to the job function? Gotcha. Yeah. And I think part of what you're highlighting in the question, I think there's a distinction that I didn't really appreciate early on of management and leadership. And so, you know, frontline manager is managing people. And it's kind of the beginning of, I'm not just directly getting results through my own work. I'm getting results through other people. And so, as you pointed out, when you're in leadership and now you're managing managers or maybe even managers who are managing managers, there's a whole other level um, of, of coordination of setting a tone for the organization. This is where I go back to business school, why these the org development classes are so important because the, that's where you learn these kind of things. The I guess to your back to your original question, the, the people management is kind of table stakes. Got it. So it's it's expanded to you're managing the people, but you're also kind of overseeing strategic objectives for each of those teams that those people are responsible for. And you are setting a leadership tone for the entire organization, be that attitude or ethics, or maybe it's work-life balance. Maybe it's it could be any number of things that you're saying, hey, this is what it means to, to work in this organization. And that is something that gets overlooked a lot. It sounds like you're saying. It does. Yeah. And setting that tone, you know, it comes through in what they say, you know, what they talk about in staff meetings, what they communicate, but it also comes through in just what they, the example that they set, right? So it's really interesting working in an organization where you have the leader saying, you know, I'm I'm all for work-life balance, but they're consistently sending out emails, you know, late at night, on the weekends, crazy early, like they don't sleep. That's a pretty mixed message, right? You're saying work-life balance is important, but not seeing it. It seems like you're working around the clock. Yeah, that's very true. A lot of people have access to email 24-7 or as much as they want, right? It's on their phone. It's they can access it from home, from anywhere. And if you get something from your boss on the weekend, you kind of raise the eyebrow like, oh, should I just, maybe I should just go ahead and answer that. It'll only take a minute. And then you set this precedent because you feel like you need to to be responsive. Whereas to your point, if maybe they had just scheduled that email to show up in the inbox really early on Monday morning, they can still model what they want. They can still send it, quote, send it right then. But they can prevent it from being in someone's face, I guess. Until then, now, you know, there's the whole other side of the coin, like maybe you should just not check your email on weekends, but that's a different soapbox to get on. Well, both those cases point to boundaries, which is something I struggled with a lot in my career. Tell us a little bit more about that specific point, the boundaries, as you progressed from the individual contributor kind of up the ladder on on uh, what I'm ref- going to refer to as your CFO reverse timeline. 
Yeah. So I'd say, you know, first of all, probably not surprisingly, you know, every progression up that timeline, there's more and more scope and responsibility that comes with that. And so if you're not setting good boundaries, that means I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working a lot more. I was working, you know, more later at night and occasional weekends at least. And so for me personally, I, and this is something that I think just started off in childhood, right? I, I've always been a people pleaser. So I've struggled to say no. Yeah, I'd put a plus one on that one. Always struggled to say no myself. Yeah, I mean, you should just gone into investment banking if that was that was the lifestyle, right? <laughs> Could have made the money up front and <laughs> retired early. Exactly, yeah. There's a reason people do this. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask a selfish question, which is, you know, organizational effectiveness in, in, in organizational leadership. Is, is that something that people can just learn or, you know, take extension classes in without getting a full-blown MBA? Yeah, there are classes in it and there are, you know, there are executive programs, executive MBAs. So there are, there are opportunities to, to get more training. And actually, I remember this from the, I, I mentioned I had the one core class in org development and the teacher of that class, you know, said, all you quantitative people, you really don't want to be here. In my mind, I'm just like raising my hands. But said everyone who comes back for an executive MBA, this is the most popular subject. That's terrific. Because it's 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 underweighted early on, and and you know that's where leaders realize they need the most help. Yeah, it's it's funny because I'm thinking to myself, it's the thing that I've heard the least about, right? The 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 different things that you mentioned that you studied, like I would have said, oh yeah, I know about that. I know about that. Operations, I know about that. Organizational development. Those are two words that I know the meanings of, and you put them together, and I'm like, ooh, I don't know that I can define that, like off the top of my head, you know, knowing, do I know anything about that at all? I can guess, but I don't actually know, right? Well, and I just think of even just one example of where that's come up in my career. So back when I was in engineering, like all the work we did, it was all, you know, I worked for a smaller engineering consulting company. So we were all together in one building. And so the, the collaboration was very, very direct. Then when I went to Intel, much larger company has, you know, sites all over the world. You know, then we had kind of the, my introduction to virtual teams. And so it's an interesting dynamic where everyone on the team is here together, except for one person that's off at a different site. You know, like it creates a whole different, whole different team dynamic. And I didn't realize how big of a disadvantage that one person who was offsite was at. And so then, you know, now fast forward to COVID, where you have everyone working from home, at least for a season, and still many, many, if not most people working from home, or in some type of a hybrid setup, nobody wants to go back to the office full time. That creates a whole different, just how work gets done, and how collaboration happens. It's easy to overlook until it's disrupted in a big way. That sounds like something that people who might be considering management and or, you know, people management or leadership of some form, sounds like something that they should really keep in mind if they're going to 
to pursue that. Something that you should be even more mindful of as a leader of that team with the person who's remote. Maybe even more so than the colleague who's sitting in the room and still needs to make sure they have a relationship with that coworker who's remote. I would love to know, Scott, what are some of those other qualities that you feel are needed for someone to be an effective leader in the high-tech finance industry? Well, there's a few things. And I think um, when I started at Intel, Andy Bryant was a CFO there. And something he used to say quite a bit is, you know, think like an owner. And so if I was a product line analyst for a given product, he would say, no, you're the CFO of that product. You should take on that level of responsibility and ownership as if you really do own it. And so it's a mindset. Again, going back to how I would do the analysis and the modeling, that wouldn't necessarily change those tactical things. But maybe I think of the stakeholders differently. If I'm in charge of this versus I'm just going to go get my boss's you know, approval. Uh, so I think that's one. I think that's a mindset thing. I mentioned earlier the business acumen. Uh, I think in, in finance leadership in particular, uh, it's not enough in high tech to just know the numbers inside out. I think really understanding the business drivers, uh, understanding the competition is, you know, those things are critical. Um, so I think the acumen externally and internally. And then I think there's just a, there's a big communication piece to, to good leadership. Yeah, I think of being able to, again, when I started off as an analyst, it was all about making sure I get the numbers right. And, and that's definitely important uh, if you're in finance. But I think if I'm presenting something, especially to executives, what's I need to be telling a story. I'm not just showing tables of data on the page. And so how do I take that data and at least turn it into information, but really you know, what are the insights that I'm getting from that information that comes from the data? And so it's kind of the, it's kind of the, so what from presenting something, why, why should they care? Can you talk a little bit about the different types of roles that you had um, during your career and, and maybe where you got some of those insights about, you know, what was important when maybe we can start with the different types of roles that you had and, and then maybe, I can ask you after each role <laughs> whether you got a specific type of leadership insight there. Yeah. So in, in finance at Intel, they have a rotational culture. And really the philosophy there is we want to have well-rounded you know, finance people, uh, you know, not necessarily you know, deep expertise for 15, 20 years in one specific area, but people that are going to move around and, and over time be, be more and more well-rounded. I think part of that is also just objectivity. So there, there's a tension in finance. So it's it's supporting an organization, but it's also being able to step in and be able to disagree. And so there's that objectivity that's really valued. And so if you're staying in one place for too long, it's it's hard to maintain that objectivity over time. So the types of roles that I had, so I was a cost analyst, I was a product line analyst, a couple different roles with very different scopes. I managed, you know, kind of a frontline manager on a few different groups. And one was more investment oriented. 
and the other was more uh, around the, the revenue and pricing. And so if I think about just like a, a profit and loss statement or a P&L statement, you know, it starts off with the revenue at the top line. And then below that, there's a product cost and that, you know, you subtract the cost from the revenue. That's, that's how much profit or margin that we're making. And then there's all the different investment costs of so the sales and marketing and the R&D. And eventually you get down to the bottom line, you know, the operating profit. And so if I think of these different roles as kind of, okay, what part of that P&L am I, am I learning about and am I focusing on here? So some were pricing, some were product cost, uh, some was on the investment side, you know, a little lower on the P&L. And the idea, again, is kind of the, once you have kind of that well-rounded breadth, then you'd really be able to understand the, the full P&L. I think it just blew my mind there. I never thought about how you could think about yourself and where your role fit in and whether you're getting a full, well-rounded view of the entire company by how many of those lines on a P&L that you've uh, had a role in. That's really cool. I, I think that maybe technologists can do something similar, maybe not at the P&L statement, but like, you know, via, you know, throughout a single product line, for example, have you thought about, you know, where you are in this product line? Are you supporting it on an infrastructure basis? You know, so you're part of the costs. Are you supporting sales and marketing? Are you supporting um, engineering? in R&D, I never thought about thinking about my role that way. And I'm going to have to, I have to do a rewind of my entire career and, and do that. That's pretty interesting to use the profit and loss statement as a guidebook for the experience you might be lacking or wanting to see it all or to understand quote to cash or however you might call the, the process beginning to end of a transaction for a product. Yeah. So if you think about it, if, if you want to be a CFO, CFO is getting grilled by the investors and the investors can poke at any part of the P&L statement, the cash flow statement, the balance sheet. And so the, the CFO has to be well-versed on any kind of question that they could get. Uh, that's another element. You have to be able to face the music with the investors who ask the hard questions. So if you're a business unit CFO, does that mean you're facing those questions from the parent organization? Yes. Yeah. So the CEO and the board. Got it. They are the quote unquote investors in this business. That's unit. right. That's right. Okay. Even that bit of insight, that's fascinating. It's not something that I thought about before. What if we do a slight pivot, you know, from the CFO's lens, right? CFO of a business unit. What would you tell the lower level technologist that they could do better to communicate with people in finance. As John mentioned, I may be supporting the infrastructure for uh, this product's software testing or, or something of that nature or helping the marketing and, and sales function. But I'd just be, just be curious uh, what advice you might have for, for the technologist who doesn't always speak the lingo of, of the finance folks. Yeah, and is is this specifically around like IT? Yeah, IT or or even even other departments in the company, really. I mean, Nick and I work as sales engineers, right? So 
you have this like sales function on product lines, right? And sometimes, you know, we're getting asked for numbers. We assume they're getting rolled up to some kind of finance function to make decisions, but we don't know why or how. And same when you're in, in IT operations, you're getting asked for estimates on operational costs of, you know, different parts of the infrastructure, infrastructure, comparing like renting something versus buying something else. You know, it's just kind of an opaque process of like, why am I being asked this? You know, why is this important? And, and how is this being used? Like, how can I better interact with the people that are asking these questions to understand what's actually being asked, what decisions are being made with this information, and how can we be better about these numbers? I think there's room for improvement. It all comes down to the communication, but I think it's both ways, right? I think finance can also communicate better on here's what we're asking for, but here's here's why we're asking because context always matters. And and I say that anytime finance is requesting something, there can be an implied motive, right? So are they are they looking to are they looking to cut my numbers? So maybe I need to sandbag right on the the actual numbers. So I think and I wouldn't this is not limited to IT, but I just think in general, just transparency, if there can be mutual transparency, that's that's almost always going to lead to the better outcome. Like if somebody says, hey, why do we need 15 more servers this year? Or why do we need those seven storage arrays this year? Or why do our cloud costs go up by 15%, guys? I mean, it's a legit question. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's, sometimes it's tricky to quantify. Because in a perfect world, I'd say, hey, I'm spending, I'm spending this much money and here's how much additional profit we're getting because we're spending that money. And if you could quantify everything, you could just compare everything side by side and say, I'm just going to rank order you know, all those investments that are going to give the biggest return to the company and then just cut at some point. And the question is, what do you do when the benefits are more subjective? So maybe I can't quantify you know, profit. Maybe it's a security issue, right? So if we don't do that, here's the risk you know, that we're putting the company at. Right. A breach costs this much on average for companies across the world in 2023 or 2022. Yep. And by not making this purchase, we're increasing our risk from X percent to Y percent. Yep. Yeah. I can see why two-way conversations are important there because you might be talking about something that is completely orthogonal to what's being asked or the motivations for why something's being asked. But it's also really difficult to like always articulate why you're asking for a number instead of just getting the numbers. Like, hey, I need to plug this into the cell in my spreadsheet. Exactly. And if I'm a finance analyst coming to you and you can't articulate what the value is, and so I just fill in a zero in there, right? I may be leading us towards a suboptimal decision because I don't understand the context. And that's where I go back to why I think business acumen is so important for finance. Maybe finance acumen is more important to the people around finance as well. Do you do you ever find that there's been any kind of like internal, hey, here's a little finance wizardry, everybody, so you'll you'll get why we're here and and why we ask you for these things? I was asked 
It's funny, I've probably been at the company close to 10 years at this point, and I was asked by one of the, the fellows, so, you know, very senior technical level to come into their staff and just give a basic overview of the things that we've been talking about, right? That the P&L cash flow statement and how does it pertain to their business? They really wanted to understand how does what we do affect Intel's bottom line? And because I had just lived and breathed this, it never occurred to me that the the very basic questions that they're asking, you know, these very senior level people didn't understand. And so, you know, I came in and did that. And I think that was helpful, but it really opened my eyes to, huh, maybe I should be proactively doing this in other groups that I go to because my assumption that they understood it was not a good assumption. That actually speaks to something else that I'd kind of been wondering about ever since you talked about, you know, a grilling, and that is being able to present something in those presentation skills and, and the communication skills. I guess that that implies that that under underlie presentations, because you could have many different audiences from, you know, a technical audience trying to understand finance to an executive audience who's there to understand the numbers that you're telling them and then to in turn grill you on them. Those are two different types of presentations. And yet within a single job function, you might be required to do that and more, right? So how does one go about developing presentation skills, you know, in those areas to be effective at those different types of presentations? Yeah, I always refer to that as being kind of bilingual. So with, as you're saying, with the technologist, so I need to be able to get into the weeds. And so I was talking about before of, you know, we don't want, we're presenting to executives. I don't want to have data tables or, you know, eye charts on, on a slide, but with the technologist, that may be exactly what they want to see and being able to uh, explain the numbers, be able to defend where they came from uh, along with the context that we've been talking about. Whereas the executives, they want to know the big picture. They want to know the story. They really want to know, you know, why, again, why does this matter? Do you need any help from me? You know, what decision are we trying to drive? Beyond that, they're busy. They don't, they don't want to be annoyed with all the details. And so, yeah, it is, there is definitely um, a need to be kind of fluent in both of those languages. And then I suppose to pivot to like any individual who's an outlier or is somewhere else on that spectrum between those two like far ends. Let me ask this, you know, we again looked at your LinkedIn and at a certain point you had this like transition where you started your own business and you were more focused on coaching and leadership skills and you kind of left the day job. Can you talk us through that transition? really enjoyed hearing Scott's explanation of the different ways we need to present to different audiences. 
Technical people need the details and the justification of how you got to your answer. Executives need a summary, and they need to know what they need to do, what decision they need to make based on that information. And I couldn't help but think of Neil Thompson and the business he built around teaching technical professionals to present to executive audiences because there is a giant mismatch in the way that should be done. That's right. Neil Thompson, Teach the Geek. That was a great conversation we had with him. And I guess I didn't think about organizational development being a huge gap for people to come back and fill once they're in leadership at a certain level. Did you? It's definitely something that I understood in retrospect, but it's not something that I think that I was 100% conscious of as as an area of study at business school, organizational development. Although it makes sense in retrospect, of course, right? How to build an organization and and build it so that it it's robust and that and it lasts. I can understand why people would maybe neglect that because it it's not, you know, one of those flashy oh, you know, I've graduated with MBA and I'm going into corporate finance or investment or banking. It's not one of those things, but I think probably people who do executive MBAs with a clear vision on what skills they need in their career for the position that they're targeting might be more likely to to study that. It's interesting, though, that that's something that you can just go and take a class in. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, I think that, you know, maybe that's something to, to keep in mind. You know, for people who are thinking about going into leadership, it's one of the tasks that you need as a leader. When people say, oh, I want to be a CIO or a VP or something like that, I don't know if they understand what that job entails. And one of the things that it entails is building and leading an organization. Maybe we should start looking through the job descriptions of directors and senior directors at different places to see if organizational development is on there because I hadn't hadn't thought about that one. I've definitely seen it on resumes. Built a team of, and then there's like a number of people. I don't know that that's the correct metric for successfully building an organization is the size of the organization. I wonder if there are other metrics that people can point to on a resume to to kind of speak to the, the success. Like, generated outsized profits, you know, had a high retention rate. Oh man, this jogs my memory. So Shalvi Waklu, if you go back and listen to the episodes that we recorded with her, she actually helped create job leveling standards for her entire organization of, I think, around 90 people. So that's that's a great mm-hmm. accomplishment that I think w- is valid for a resume. Yeah, definitely. And I have to say that I definitely have come across people who had a major task of having job leveling standards. And it's a big deal within an organization. It's, it provides clarity on what you should expect from somebody when they're getting promoted from level to level, for example, you know, clearly this person uh, is qualified to be promoted or clearly they are not because they have not exhibited these skills. Right. And I think, I actually think, and you hinted at this in the recording, that the terms organizational development is so loaded and ambiguous that you hear it and you're like, I don't really know what that is. Yeah, it might be a topic for a future episode if we can 
find somebody who has specialized in that and can point to the different aspects of it and how one would go about calling that out on a resume. That's just a fascinating topic. It it really opened up a whole area of thought for me, which is, you know, I always love when that kind of thing happens. Well, one thing to think about as we're reflecting on this episode is how about that reverse career timeline that Scott built for his target of wanting to be a business unit CFO? I like that he got help and talked to people about the types of skills he would need, the types of roles he might need to take part in to get there, people management or people leadership being a, an implied or quite necessary skill to get him there. Yeah, I liked just the concept of targeting business unit executive leadership because it's kind of a layer that people don't necessarily think about when they say, I want to go into leadership, I want to be, and then pick a, a leadership title, right? They sometimes don't specify whether they're talking about like the corporate parent company of a, you know, parent organization of a large organization with many subdivision and subdivisions and business units, which is, you know, pretty high up or, you know, medium sized business that maybe is flat that way, doesn't have, you know, as many business units and, or, you know, even just the idea that a business unit might have its own CFO or finance leadership. Whereas we kind of take it for granted that a, business unit might have its own chief technology officer, for example. Or product engineering, product marketing, product management. Exactly. So, yeah, just really interesting conceptual ideas, you know, that had unlocked a lot for me there as well. I think Scott's kind of expansion of the, the specifics of what thinking like an owner means was, you know, again, I called it out at the beginning, fascinating to listen to him talk about business drivers, competition, communication within the order, like just a whole lot of things there that what quote unquote thinking like an owner means, you know, it's not just spending money the way an owner would spend money. It's a very specific and rigorous uh, meaning. I think that, that I hadn't really thought through really cool to get exposed to that idea. And then as much as I enjoyed listening to and having the com- conversation about communicating with finance, I really feel like we just grazed the topic. Yeah, there's so much more to that. Oh my goodness, yes. And I think maybe that's on us to have additional conversations between ourselves and and with listeners about what it is that seems to be the problem You know, with those types of communications. I think we touched on some of those, like getting asked for numbers and not knowing what they're for providing numbers without context, not being able to communicate the value of what you are trying to get with your project. Yes. Yes. That's a skill that has to be developed and honed. My goodness. Yeah. Again, all of that aside, again, I think it's just scratching the surface. So let's make it a point to kind of think about what communicating with finance means and, and understanding what those miscommunications really uh, entail. Yeah. And speaking of being in finance, if you were to look at Scott's LinkedIn profile, you'd see that he's not in finance. I wonder how that happened. We won't know until next week. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. 
We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at BJourneyman for Nick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore. Signing off. Adios. Adios.